I say, think of it as two separate Ali and law. Oh, I got it. Ali, Ali law. law. Mm-hmm. Like God's law. Or something like that. <laughs> Come on now. <laughs> That's it. Welcome to Making It an Opera, a podcast about what it really means to find your voice and use it. I'm your host, Gwendolyn Kuhlman. Hey, everyone, and welcome to Making It an Opera. I'm so happy that you're here. And honestly, I'm just kind of honored and floored to know that you're listening. If you like these conversations, I have two requests for you. Tell your friends and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps people to find us. Let people know what we're doing here that we're building a community of people who want to think about life and art differently. Thank you for being part of it. I'm so excited to share with you this conversation I had with Jamie Alilaw a few months ago. Jamie has worn many hats and lived a few lives. As a sergeant in the U.S. Army Reserves, she served a tour in Iraq and sang frequently for the military throughout the U.S. and the Middle East. As a soprano, she is equally at home in operatic, concert, and spiritual repertoire. She has become both a specialist in and a fierce advocate for the performance of works by African-American composers. She's organized concerts and won awards for her research on these composers, presenting and performing at the National Council of Black Studies annual conference. She's also an innovator. She created Le Femme Noire, a concert program that celebrates the contributions of Black women composers, poets, and performers in the realm of classical music. She's also partnered with composer and concert pianist B.E. Boykin to create Tapestry, a school and community engagement program that teaches about the origins and attributes of spirituals through performance and participation. And lastly, she's an empowerment coach and anti-racism facilitator through her company from the core coaching, meaning she works to free the voices of those who have been silenced, clearing the way for them on both the organizational level and the individual mind game level. As we'll talk about, her training and experience in this field has prepared her for the work she has taken on as part of the Black Opera Alliance Leadership Council. Just a month before releasing this podcast, her worlds of art and activism came together in her performance of The Mother in Marble City Opera's world premiere of I Can't Breathe, with music by Leslie Savoy Burrs and the Bretto by Knoxville-based writer and singer Brandon J. Gibson, an opera that explores the themes of grief, loss, love, identity, and hope. It was inspired by and written in the wake of repeated instances of fatal police brutality. Even though she's based in Atlanta like me, I actually got to meet Jamie because of this podcast. Rand Bryce Davis recommended I reach out to her after our conversation last season, and I am so glad she did. Our conversation was just easy. Jamie comes from a space of both power and compassion, able to communicate the impact of the way things have been on all of us, especially people of color. She's able to go to the core of the wounds we must heal from and the harm we must stop inflicting. And she's able to share the possibilities of what we could have, who we could be, and what we could create together. When we decide to truly listen to each other, to be honest, and to do the work it takes to move forward, she's like a well of wisdom and honesty, and that is why it was a true joy to speak with her for what amounted to three hours. This is the first half of our conversation. We'll be back with the next half next week. Thank you.
Thank you for coming on, Jamie Alila. You have such an interesting history, such a varied sort of path that you've taken in your life. And so I like to tell people that one of the most powerful things we can do against this narrative of the industry pipeline, that there's only one way to have success and this is what it looks like. And we're going to pound it into you throughout your education career as a singer. The best way we can counteract that is to tell our stories. So I would love to know from you, how did you grow up? What went into your decision to join the army reserves? What led you to opera? What led you to where you are now? You can start at any point you like. I was going to say, cause that's a, that's a, I mean, that's a biopic right there <laughs> in and of itself. Um, so I, how I grew up. So music has always been an integral part of my environment. My dad was a DJ so, you know, he would practice. And I mean, and this was, you know, when they had the actual records and turntables and it wasn't laptops and stuff. So he would pull out the crates and on Saturday mornings would practice scratching and, you know, everything. So definitely hip hop and soul and funk and jazz, everything was in there. And my mom's musical palette was so varied. So, you know, we, my sisters and I joke about how she like ruined us because we would be like <laughs> Johnny Mathis, Barbara Streisand, you know, and then there would be some, some Mahalia Jackson in there and who, uh, I mean, of course, Patti LaBelle, but just like, oh, Anita Baker. Anita mm. Baker and my little eight-year-old soul just resonated with the sultriness of Anita Baker. So I just, mm. I always, I've sung since I could make sound. Like I don't remember a time when I wasn't singing and it just has seemed like an extension of me, but I wanted to be Anita Baker. I wanted to be an R&B alto. <laughs> All right. <laughs> That's what I wanted <laughs> for my life. I wanted to sing and I wanted to sing like Anita Baker. Um, that's not the voice that I got. Um, and I was in denial for a, a good long while about that. But, you know, I'm here now and I accept it. So I started to sing in choir. I sang in my first choir when I was in fourth grade, I think, at my grandma's church. My grandmother, my grandmother was like the church mother, Mother Taylor. That was her. And she was part of Church of God in Christ in Silmar, California. So the church she was at, you know, um, Andre Crouch. That was his church and he's, you know, huge icon in gospel music. And so mm -hmm. my very first choir was like a children's choir, fourth grade. And I sang, I think I did like maybe like a couple of weeks, but didn't really stick with it too much. But that was my first time doing rehearsal and collective singing. And then in my sixth grade graduation, we sang A Whole New World and we sang it in parts. And by parts, I mean, half of us were Jasmine and half of us were Aladdin, right? Yes. So I was just like, it was magic for me because it's like we're singing different things at the same time. And that blew my mind. So from there, all throughout middle school or junior, it was junior high school in my day. So <laughs> all through junior high, high school, I sang in choir. And it was there that I met teachers who identify, you know, just different aspects of my voice, of my passion, and they would encourage certain things. So I had a wide range. So especially when you are dealing with younger students, whoever can sing the low sings the low. So mm -hmm. I was doing, you know, alto and, and really I would just jump around to whatever part was needed. And then I just had a teacher assign me a solo and I was petrified and excited all at the same time. 
And I did it and I had to step out, you know, I had to step out from the choir, sing my part. And the feeling that I had, it was like, this is home. This is it. So I was like, okay, we're going we gonna to do more of that. And I had, um, when I got into high school, we would play around, I would play around with friends and we would see who could sing louder. I mean, I'm sure that was pleasant for everyone. <laughs> you know, so I just noted that I could be really loud. So I was mm-hmm. like, okay, this is fun. And I did a talent show in high school. And this was, you know, Tony Braxton. Like I said, I wanted to be an alto. So I sang Tony Braxton, Unbreak My Heart. Mm-hmm. You know, just all of that stuff, mm-hmm. right? I was loving it. And I had a teacher, it was my English teacher. And afterwards he came up to my mom and I, and he says, you know, Jamie, you really have a special gift. If you had voice lessons, you would be amazing. Mm. I was offended because I was like, wait a minute, voice lessons. What do you, you said I could sing. Why do I need voice lessons if I could sing? I, I didn't, mm. I didn't get it at that point. I got it later, of course. And, and I heard it for the compliment that it was. So going in, into college, I didn't know what I wanted to major in. I knew, but I didn't know. I wouldn't allow myself to know. I'll say that. Mm-hmm. So what I did was the first couple of years or I, you know, I, I decided one, I was burnt out on school, on high school and just like, oh, so tired. So I decided to go to junior college straight out because I, I didn't want to do college applications and everything. So mm-hmm. my sister was at UCLA. I decided to go to Santa Monica College um, so that I could be away from home. So mm-hmm. we got a place together. It was great. And I just decided that I'll take a dance class every semester and a music class every semester, because those were my two passions and two areas that I wanted to pursue, but I didn't know how it would be practical. So I was like, well, Mm -hmm. I'll just enjoy them. And as a senior in high school, we had recruiters come and, you know, I had never given any thought to the military. I just, no, thank you. Um, (laughs) It just, it just was not anywhere in my, I mean, both my grandfather's you know, my um, my mom's dad was in the army. My dad's dad was in the Navy. But, mm-hmm. you know, none of my uncles, my aunts, like none of nobody else. So it wasn't really in my awareness to consider what, what was in my awareness was one of the recruiters was fine. He was cute. OK, so they came to campus and I did a little double take look back like, oh, he's cute. And listen, okay, recruiters, (laughs) you know, they have this reputation. They will use whatever they can. Mm. So he so he saw us looking and was like, hey, come on over, take the the pre ads bab and see what you get. So it was like, okay, I get to get out of class and he's cute. So let's do it. And I took it and scored well. And he's like, oh, you should join the army. And I was like, no, thank you. This was fun. First year of college doing well, enjoying myself, but I I get this just kind of niggling in the back of my head. And I'm like, I don't know what this is, but I have what I believe it to be, right? In terms of this purposeful call that just didn't make any sense to me. But I found myself drawn to a conversation about the military. Then it turns out that in my work study, the people in my office, there was somebody who had served in every branch of the military in my office. So I started talking to people and asking them questions. And, you know, it's just like, I don't, this is just so weird. And it's just getting stronger and stronger and stronger. And then it got to the point to where it was like, okay, it's going to be the army. It's got something to do with the army. And that day that I made that decision, I went down to the cafeteria and there were two black girls look just like me. They had braids were in their camo. They had just gotten back from basic training and they were there with their recruiter. And so I stood and I talked with them for an hour to get the real on their experience. Mm -hmm. And, and they were real. And the recruiter was real, which again, we think about the reputation. And so I appreciated it because it was like, yeah, this don't like, this was okay. This was bad. This was cool, you know, but they were active duty. And I knew that I didn't want to go active duty. I wanted to finish college. In fact, college was not a negotiable thing for me. It was just something that I just knew I would do. So they connected me with the reserves recruiter. And we talked and it just, 
it flowed and it made sense. Mm-hmm. So I enlisted and I went, I remember I have my college counselor. I was in this and I was in this program. It was called Black Allegiance and it was for Black students on campus to supplement and to nurture, to assure that we had, you know, all the resources that we needed, that we would have guidance, that would make sure we were on track to transfer with ease, right? Mm-hmm. And so my counselor, I remember I told her and she had a fit. She was just like, don't do it. You're not going to finish college. It's going to throw you off your course, this, this, that, and the other. But the thing with me is once I know something, Mm -hmm. I can be, you know, I can be fickle and, you know, indecisive, you know, true, true Libran energy. (laughs) But, but when I know when that thing locks in, Mm -hmm. it's done. And I know I might not know everything, but I know this. And so I did it. And um, it was fun because this morning I saw that counselor updated her picture on Facebook and she's never on social media. Like the last picture she updated was probably 10, 11 years ago. And it was fun because it was a picture of she and her family, but she, um, it was fun for me to see because she came, I invited her to my graduate recital Mm -hmm. and she came with her oldest child in a stroller and that child is like 12 now or something like that I don't know my math is mathing but something like that (laughs) and I remember seeing her at that recital and afterwards connecting with her I said you were scared I wasn't gonna finish (laughs) and here I am (laughs) at my graduate recital and she said you're right she said you did it you've done more than I could have ever expected because at that time I wasn't pursuing opera even. So it's just fun to see, you know, um, and that she popped back up this morning was a a nice little side note. But so against her protests, I went ahead and went in and I told her, I was like, listen, I'm going reserves. So I'm going to go to training and I'm come home and I'll, I'll finish. And I did. So enlisted became a it was called a 55 Bravo at the time, changed to 89 Bravo ammunition supply. And I did a total of nine years in the Army mm-hmm. Reserves, which included a one-year tour in support of Operation Iraqi Freedom to Northern Iraq, where I was mm-hmm. an ammunition supply sergeant. Mm-hmm. And so that is probably one of the biggest seeming detours in my life. (laughs) But in reality, if I look at anything I've done, none of it, you know, unless you were just really, really honed in, I don't think any of it was foretold or or made sense. Do you feel like, oh, sorry. I'm just curious if it, I'm trying to kind of put this in timeline. So this was like after your first year in college or during Mm -hmm. your first year in college. Mm -hmm. And you came home from basic training and then a few years later you went and did that tour. Yes. I'm curious how much that basic training and like being in reserves and knowing that that would be asked of you at some point, if you see any way that that kind of led you and like influenced your decisions in any way. It, it certainly did. So I enlisted in 2000 in March, 2000. Oh, I got chills. Yeah. Yeah, so it was March 2000, and I was at AIT, Advanced Individual Training. So you do basic training, and then you train for your specific job. And I was at AIT in, I believe it was September or October, when the USS Cole was bombed, the submarine. And I remember I was coming in from a class, I was coming into the chow hall, and I saw all of my drill sergeants lined up watching the TV mm-hmm. and it was a very somber energy mm-hmm. and you know so we're looking around at each other I was like what's going on and then the drill sergeant looks the drill sergeants looked at us and some of them had a look of pity and some were like and then I remember one of them he said y'all about to go to war and I was like <gasps> you yeah. know like it, it it got real real for me right then, of course, we know a year later, right? we had September 11th happen. I deployed in 2004. 
Because if we're looking at this timeline, while I was in basic training, I got connected with the man who would become my husband. Uh, He and I, he and I went to, well, I don't know. Wait a minute now. (laughs) (laughs) We haven't got to that story yet, but um, (laughs) we, uh, we went to high school together. He went to the Navy straight out of high school and I was in basic training and I'm in the thick of it. And I'm just like, oh, my goodness. <laughs> and so I have my mom reach out to his mom and got us connected. And so we were writing to each other. And, and you know, I was just it was just someone I could share what I was going through with, you know, mm-hmm. and he had his insights and everything. And so we we did. We ended up getting together and, and getting married at the ripe age of 19. And um, and then I got pregnant and had my daughter in 2002. And then I got orders to deploy at the top of 2003. So my daughter was barely like a month old, two months old, something when I first got orders. And I was like, I know you lying because... <laughs> You know, and I I was just non-deployable, really. I right. literally just yeah. had pushed out this baby and we we not doing that. So I did not get deployed then, but I did get deployed in 2004 mm-hmm. before she had turned two. Mm-hmm. Um, and My so it's two right now. So I'm feeling that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was it was hard. Mm-hmm. My salvation was that I I left her with my mom and my younger sister, who was 16 at the time, Hmm. because I knew that she would be not only safe and well cared for, but she would be raised, you know, well. And it's like, if I can't be there, then my mama, you know, is probably the best thing, you know? And so I, yeah, I, I was, I had to, there was a certain detaching that had to happen to, to be able to survive literally. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the fact that she was with my mom is the only way that was possible for me. Mm -hmm. So every year, on Veterans Day, I share the picture when we were deploying a local newspaper out of Orange County, California, which was where my unit was, came to interview and take pictures and and they chose me to interview. And so there's this picture that was in the newspaper. It is one of my favorite pictures of all time where I'm I'm in uniform and I'm holding my daughter and she's looking at me like she's about to tell me the business and I'm listening <laughs> dutifully. And then they interviewed us when we returned a year later and there's a picture of me holding her. And of course she's bigger, you know, and I'm in my desert camis and, <laughs> you know, she's looking at me with this look of like, it's, it's like, it's surreal. Like she's processing that mom mm-hmm. is here. So when people, when people say, you know, Thank you for your service. I always, I always have something to say, especially on Veterans Day, because I don't know if people really realize, mm-hmm. right, that it's not just my sacrifice. It was my daughter and my mom and my sisters who had to hold it down. Mm-hmm. And our trajectory was changed. So that's one thread And when I come back, you know, I did basic training, I did AIT, and then I came back to school. Mm -hmm. And um, like I said, I got I got married and I'm still, you know, in college. And and I was like, you know, I will I will do music, but I'm going to do music education because it's practical. Mm -hmm. Um, I did a (laughs) semester of that. And it's like, this is not my ministry. Mm. This is this is not my ministry. I love I love the, the churn. But this is not, this is not my ministry. So was it just, it's not a fit or was it, were there particular things about it that you were just like, whoa, it was just not a fit. Yeah. It was just, Mm -hmm. it, it it wasn't a passion. Mm -hmm. It was something that I could not see myself doing for any extended period of time. Mm -hmm. And so I said, okay, 
I'm going to do music. I don't know what it looks like. I know it's not this. So I went back to, because I had transferred to a four-year, I went back to a junior college for a year just to get the fundamentals under my belt, Mm -hmm. basic theory things and keyboarding skills and things of that nature. And then went to transfer again to California State University, Northridge. This is the school that my mom went to. This is a school that in the Northridge earthquake sustained, because it was at the epicenter, right? So it it sustained lots of damage. And I try to avoid it because it's like my neighborhood school. You know, I grew up coming here. My mom was in college. I would come sit in her classes when she had to bring me with her. I don't want to go back here. And I went and it was so perfect for me. And I'm so grateful for it. So I went to transfer, as you know, to be in the music department, you've got audition. And I, I had taken my very first voice lesson when I was seven months pregnant with my daughter. And it was a part of the music education program, you know, 30 minutes. And she was asking, she was just so, cause she didn't have any kids. And so she was just curious. It's like, how do you feel support? Like, do you experience your support? And she was, and I was like, what is support? I don't know what you talk about lady. This is my first time taking a voice lesson. So when I went to audition with her, I had had 24 Italian art songs. So mm-hmm. I was like, all right, you know, I'll, I'll bring this in the audition, but I was going to create my own program. I wanted to do, the school had a program called Breath Studies where you could make your own course of study. And I was going to combine music and Pan-African studies. So so I was like, okay, I just got to get in, you know, just got to get accepted. So I, I, I brought my, you know, 24 Italian art songs and after I sang my audition, they say, well, do you have any questions? I said, yes. Who do I talk to about the breath studies program? And they looked at each other and they said, no, <laughs> you're, you're not going to do breath studies. You're going to do vocal performance. So they pretty much told me that I got in and was accepted to the, but I was like, okay, what, but what is that? Like, what's, uh, like a whole degree in vocal performance. What is that even? They said, yeah. well, it'll be, you know, classical and opera. I was like, oh, okay. And it was strictly curiosity. Uh-huh. And and this, and again, that same kind of niggling. That's like, okay, all right, I'll give it a try. Got in there, got into voice lessons. It's like, oh, okay. Things make sense now. Just the the loudness, right? The the weird movement in my voice, you know. Oh, vibrato. Oh, okay, got it. Um, you know the drama of it all. You know the mm-hmm. grandeur, the costumes. I was just like, okay, this is it. <laughs> this is it. So I still, you know, I still I minored in Pan African Studies. Um, because they're like, nobody double majors with music or you would never get out of here. <laughs> so I was like, okay, so I did the minor, but um, that's what brought me into opera. So if we're looking at timelines, I am separated with my daughter. I am in the military and I've now been accepted. And then when it came time to start, that's when I got deployed. So I had been like one, two weeks of classes Mm -hmm. and got deployed. So um, came back and was like, all right, let's do this. Went straight through, finished my bachelor's, bam, then stayed and finished my master's degree, bam. So that's what brought all of these worlds together, right? So you got military, you've got Pan-African studies and scholarship, and you've got music and Mm -hmm. I'm a mom. <laughs> wow. And so here we are. It's like 2008, 2009. It sounds like you were on a, like, you had a similar trajectory as me as far as when you graduated. Uh, very different before that. But uh, yeah. So, and that's around the time you did your first afternoon of spirituals, like researching and documenting Black composers. Yes. And I, so that would have been in your master's work. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I'm interested because for me on my trajectory, I actually studied art song as well in my, for my master's work. 
And it was actually art song that also kind of led me to my, to kind of finding my purpose Mm -hmm. in all of this. And I'm wondering if it was a similar kind of journey for you that it kind of all came together with that evening. Well, it's, it's interesting because that was just one expression. Mm -hmm. What started it was with my junior recital and my teacher said, well, you know, you can include spirituals. And I was like, what? What? (laughs) Because again, when they told me I was going to do this major, it was curiosity, but I was fairly ignorant of the art form. You know, I'd, I'd sung in choir, so I'd done classical pieces in high school choir, mm-hmm. had heard opera before, but had never seen it and had never had any connection, never thought it had anything to do with me. Mm-hmm. And so actually, while I was deployed, I called my sister. My older sister was living in New York at the time. And I said, Jade. I need you to go to the record store, right? Because Tower Records was still a thing. I said, I need you to go to the opera section and I need you to just like, I need you to get me a black opera singer. Like just find a CD and get me somebody. Because at that point I was like, do black people even do opera? Like Mm -hmm. I didn't know anything about it. So my girl came through. Because she sent me, she sent me what? She sent me Barbara Streisand because I asked for Barbara Streisand too, because it made like, me feel like a home. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, no, not quite. Not, not quite. That was not from <laughs> that assignment. <laughs> but she sent me the essential Leontine Price. That is the CD she sent me. And I was like, oh, girl, you do not know how right you were mm-hmm. to send me that. So it was during my deployment. That was where the seeds were planted initially Mm -hmm. because I'm like, I was thirsty to see myself in this space because Mm -hmm. I was like, okay, if I'm the first, you know, ignorance, right? If I'm the first one, I'll do it, but I just need to know what I'm up against. Mm -hmm. And so to then get this CD and I'm like, okay, are black people still doing it? So I'm, I'm doing research and coming across all of these amazing singers. Mm-hmm. And then when my teacher says, well, you know, you can do spirituals. I, you know, I told you, grandma, church of God in Christ, spirituals. Hello. We know that. Right. And so, mm-hmm. again, it's another way that I'm seeing myself that I'm connecting. And so I'm like, OK, so we got these black people singing opera. We've got spirituals. Are there black composers like writing art song? Mm-hmm. I wonder. So I launched myself into my own personal research, right? Because academia, especially at that time, was not supporting it, mm-hmm. right? But I had a professor. He was one of two Black professors in my music department, and he was the head of the choral department. And he introduced me to the work of Dr. Daryl Taylor, who is the creator of the African-American Art Song Alliance. He -hmm. gave me a promo, a PR kit for Dr. Taylor, which included an album. I think it was his I2 album where he um, recorded Margaret Bond's set. And it had his bio and just his research, you know. Mm -hmm. And so I'm looking at the liner notes you know, and this is where I'm, I find out about Willis Patterson. So I'm, you know, doing my research and pulling in songs that my teacher had never heard of. Mm-hmm. And I remember there was one song I pulled out and she says, why don't I know this music? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I know. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. I know. So. I did the junior recital. And as I said, I'm doing Pan-African studies alongside. So in my master's program as well, and I took a, um, it was an aesthetics, black aesthetics, I think was the name of the class. And so it was in this, that class where I made my assignment, just really delving into this research and just being like, yeah, why don't people know about this music? Mm Mm-hmm. 
so I got together with some black colleagues in the music department. To be honest, I don't even remember how I got connected with the California African-American Museum. Lord, that's, I mean, memory stuff, but, you know, just instrumentalist. Um, so, you know, Crystal was on violin, Jason was on piano, uh, Wyatt was on euphonium, I think. No shade things. to people who, who play No euphonium. shade at all, but wow, what how unexpected. Yeah. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and and me singing, and we brought this afternoon of spirituals to the California African American Museum. So that started my career as a producer and, and programmer and you know, whatever. And in my undergrad, I did, I just it was my own curiosity and desire to have access to the music and to grant access and more exposure to this music. I won a grant from school from just the research. It's really a research, a, a lecture recital. You know, that's where I learned that terminology. But it was me talking about pieces and performing, you know, mm -hmm. before performing them. And uh, it was part of an organization called the Hip Hop Think Tank where, um, you know, we we were the knowledge element of hip hop because, you know, you got the B-boy, you've got the DJ, you got the rapper and graffiti artists. It's like we're the knowledge element. So we had a publication that we would do. And so I decided to do research on the evolution. I did a, a presentation called From Spirituals to Hip Hop, where I mm. just explored the through line of Black music as activist music. Mm -hmm. And so all of these things were just kind of born and nurtured in undergrad and grad school. And, you know, I, I was thinking that I, I would like, I would write things and be like, oh yeah, this is for this class or for an A or for this, for this money, right? For this grant. Mm -hmm. And if, you know, and I'm like, oh, I'm just pulling stuff out of, you know, my nether regions, you know, and, making <laughs> <laughs> and thinking that, oh, this is just for that. And I do, I look back and I look and I was like, nah, sis, because you're still, this is very much foundation building for what would become my purpose and my passion and my niche, my focus. So then you got out of grad school and I saw this. I could end the interview with you that I brought up before we really started the interview, but it was 2009. You were in a program and they were just Opera interviewing works. Opera Works and they mm -hmm. were interviewing you about your experience. And you had some profound things to say about how opera had to become. You weren't using the word inclusive yet. You were using. It wasn't inclusion. Because I remember, I remember that being the one word where I thought, "Huh, she's started to say inclusion since then." But you were, you were saying that opera needed to become more accessible. Accessible was the word you were using, and um, I thought, like, aside from that one word not being present, how interesting that she is still saying the same thing twelve years later. Thank God a lot more people are listening to her now. But like, I told you this before, but I thought, my God, how annoying that had to have been. <laughs> but I'm wondering at what point was it in opera works, not to like throw any, throw any sort of shade on them, but at what point in this whole trajectory were you looking around and thinking, we got to reach out, we got to we had to open these doors. Like what is going on? The days of this elitism are over. It was from the very beginning. Cause I, mm -hmm. I like I said, I didn't know what opera was. Yeah. Right. And so for me now in it and very selfishly, self-centeredly, right. I'm centering myself. So I want my family and my friends to come and see and hear me, mm -hmm. right? And the same way I said I had never even considered opera as having anything to do with me, it's the same for them, mm -hmm. right? 
And so it was born of me wanting to see black people in the audience. And just as I didn't know that there were black people in this, they didn't know. And it goes so much further beyond representation, right? Because representation can be weaponized, right? Mm-hmm. It can be, it we can be summer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. It can be used as a tool to distract from actual change, right? When you put people who look like you. So representation is only a part of it. And so, but it is a part, right? Because if I don't see anything that calls to me, I'm not going to consider it. Mm -hmm. And so that goes with who's on the stage, who's in the pit, right? It goes with what is the story? What are we even talking about, right? Like, yeah, that's cute. Uh, Barbarina and Figaro and these people running around looking crazy. But is that supposed to be funny? That's not the stuff that I usually laugh at. You know what I mean? And so for me, it was very much a campaign (laughs) to get people to come see me. (laughs) Right. And so (laughs) that's I mean, really, the spirituals, it was it feels like home, but also it's like, okay, here is a segment that my people will recognize. Right. Mm -hmm. And then with the art song, while they might not know these composers or the the poet, well, I was going to say they do know because I remember I did, you know, the Margaret Bond set, which mm-hmm. is Langston Hughes. So it's like, OK, mm-hmm. I might not know this, but I know these words mm-hmm. that I could connect to. And even if they don't know though that specific poet, the themes that are happening, the idioms that you hear in the music, right? These jazz idioms right? Mm -hmm. These gospel idioms, these quotes that exist in this classical music speaks to something familiar. Mm -hmm. And so at that point, I I use the word I intended, right? In terms of accessibility, because it's like people need to know that they have access to this, that this is for them. Mm -hmm. And I'm not talking about a pandering, Right. Right. Which is what I saw and have seen because the pandering doesn't require us to leave our post. It keeps us comfortable. Yeah. So it's just like, oh, just a little sprinkle. It's like breadcrumbs to try to lure you into our house Mm -hmm. where you'll just get more of the stuff that doesn't really speak to you. Mm-hmm. Right. So I'm not talking about that. And so that's when inclusion starts to come into play, because here's the thing. <laughs> Studies show history shows that a collective of white people will never be able to access other people in the way that people from that community can speak to and access them. Mm -hmm. So accessibility requires the inclusion of the voices and perspectives who speak the language of the people you're trying to speak to. It also requires the incorporation of this language, right? Mm -hmm. These sensibilities, these tastes. Mm -hmm. So that again, it's not like, oh yeah, go community outreach, right? Go to those people and affect, right? Because you have, you speak the lingo so that you can, again, lure them into our house Mm -hmm. where they are not seeing themselves accessibility that is accessed through inclusion 
which requires access to power and decision making. So it's not just enough to be like, we've got a colored at the table, (laughs) right? Mm. Because again, it's like, does that person, are they empowered to speak up? And when they speak, are they heard? When they speak, are their ideas adopted? Mm -hmm. Do they have the power to veto? I know you think you're clever. I know you think this will work. I know you, this is, this is the thing. We, we have been talking about outreach as though people need opera. Oh, please, please speak to this. Thank you. Right. So it's like, Oh, we reach out to the Title I schools. We bring opera to to the underprivileged and to the this and this and that. Whereas I've done shows, right, with the opera and we've had talkbacks and they was like, I think this was, you know, the dating it just a little bit. But it's like, do you know how to do the nene? Yeah. I've just sung in Italian. But me, being who I am, I know exactly what they're saying. Mm -hmm. But who are you for real? Right? Mm -hmm. Like, I know who you look like, but who are you for real? Are you one of these people who's come in blackface, but Mm -hmm. don't don't have a relationship, don't know me, right? Mm -hmm. Or are you truly someone who reflects and represents me? Right. Then even further, it does do something to see me. And I've, I've seen it in these school shows. I've seen it. I've seen the looks on the faces. It does something to see me up there and to hear me sing with this powerful instrument. And also, again, what's the story that we're telling? Because that connection only goes so far. Mm -hmm. so that's again why I love the work that I do with spirituals and with black composers and storytellers because this is a very powerful instrument and this is a very profound medium of communication so say something yes say something that's what I'm here for and that's from my experience, from my audiences that I have so self-centeredly sought, mm-hmm. that's what they want to hear and see. It only goes so far, again, to have that representation. It's like, that was nice seeing you, mm-hmm. right? I'm probably not going to go to the opera again, <laughs> right? But that was, that was dope what you did. Mm-hmm. I've heard that. You know, that was dope what you did. And then people get mad at Kanye and people going to Kanye's opera and people being mad to the point of that's not opera. Mm-hmm. Right. That's why I don't nobody want to play with you. Yeah. You act like that. Nobody wants. To, you know what I mean? And yeah. here's the thing. We feel it. We feel yeah. that energy in the audience. You talking about diversity and inclusion. Have you changed your heart? Because mm-hmm. People pick up on vibes. Yeah. Do you actually really want us there? Do you actually really give a shit about what we have to say? And here's mm-hmm. the thing, right? And and I remember I heard this quote. I heard it secondhand, so I don't know. I don't remember the source. But there's a difference between all are welcome and this space was created for you or with you in mind, Ooh. right? Ooh. That's the difference between being a guest And being home. Mm. And so I know for me and for many of my colleagues, we're tired of being guests in this art form that we have put in just as much, if not more, sweat equity and investment and passion and money Mm. and emotional labor into as anybody else, but we still have to get permission every time, mm-hmm. right? And it's beholden to the kind-heartedness of mm-hmm. a white whoever, a white Oz, 
right? Yeah. That that says this is not my art form. And I'm at the point now to where it's like, are we allowed to cuss on this? Oh, yeah. Okay, I'm at the point where now I'm like, I know you fucking lying. Because, Mm -hmm. again, when we go back to my own path, I wasn't looking for this. Right. I didn't look for this. This is the voice that I have. Mm -hmm. And it's the training that I now have. It's the sensibilities that I have. It is. There are things that are innate within me. And while I may never measure up to a standard that was not created with me in mind, right? I most certainly have access to an autonomy over this voice and being a creator myself, being a creative myself, right? Because this is another conversation in terms of how singers are often just relegated to just do what's on the page and what I tell you to do. Be our pretty doll. Yeah. Be our pretty doll and, it, and move around the stage. Yep. Yeah. And it's like, well, I have thoughts. I have opinions. I have insights. I am a, I'm a thinking being, right? But we, mm-hmm. <laughs> but we are relegated to recycling the practices that mm-hmm. some other creator did, which was successful and was dope for them. Mm-hmm. Right. It's, but now we have it imposed upon us as though that's the thing that made it work. When in reality, it was the soul animating that thing that made it work. And my soul has some things it's ready to animate as well. Mm-hmm. So Absolutely. that notion of accessibility, inclusivity goes far beyond the visual and lip service. And, and I think, oh, well, I was going to say, and it, and it permeates. You can tell when it really is embedded and when it is, you know, painted mm-hmm. on. Absolutely. And uh, sorry to interrupt. Um, I was getting excited because I think it was something I was expressing to Rayanne as well, that what you're speaking to is something that is holding back the entire art form it most definitely holds back and impedes Black artists. And it holds back everyone else without us even seeing it or realizing it. And we were talking about this earlier, that when you're Black, there's only so much you can change. You cannot change your skin. And when you're white, that part is kind of taken care of in a structure that is built for white people. And so then you then you run around kind of in the circle all the time thinking, okay, there's something wrong with me and I just haven't fixed it. I have one more thing to fix. And you don't look up as a white person and really realize, oh, even if I fixed everything, I'm actually part of perpetuating a thing that's not working. And I think what you're what you are speaking to, what the Black Opera Alliance is speaking to, what Black women in opera are speaking to, is what is actually going to make our art relevant. I was on stages in Germany for years watching them like try and put somebody in another in another leather suit or something to like draw the young people <laughs> and you're like oh my god just say something real and relevant like give them whips the kids like whips the kids like whips oh just make just make half of them naked that'll be good <laughs> sex cells let's give sex. them some of that yeah yeah instead of Instead of doing that inner work, that deep work that you're talking about right now. So I want to go, we're skipping over some amazing things you've done. We're going to, we're going to need to do like a part two or something. We're going to need to do a part you know. two, two. But um, what this whole like incredible rant you've been on comes from this training you have now as a life coach, as the founder and CEO of From the Core Coaching and how you have actually parlayed that into what you're doing on the Leadership Council of Black Opera Alliance. And so what I could find from your blog, it seemed like From the Core Coaching started in 2020, at the beginning of 2020, though, like six months before everything went down. <laughs> so actually, it started um, It started in 2019. Okay. But what happened was I got my certification and training. I, I graduated in 2019 and that's when I started. But also what I found in that time was I needed to return to performing. And so that's what I did. I, I put all of my focus back into performing 
and then got home from my last show, uh, you know, of doing Mother Avis and Sound of Music, got home and clink, clank, lockdown. So Mm -hmm. so it started in 2019, um, but 2020 certainly called it forth in a very visual, visible and vocal way. And so you're going along doing this life coaching work. Did you anticipate it turning into actually coaching entire organizations on how to treat people? (laughs) What was your process and what you thought this was going to be versus what it's become? I started coaching. Again, it was another one of those moments where I just, this is just something I got to do. So I cannot say that I knew what I was going to do with it. I just knew that when I was coaching, I had the same sensation that I got when I was on stage. Mm. I had that same like, ah, yes, this is it. Last year and the way in which I was being called forth, being so vocal, Mm -hmm. I was finding that there was a large request, that there was a, there was a large space that I had skill sets and passions to service. So in terms of facilitation and the training, right. In terms of, you know, being able to listen and to see and to get to the heart, to the core Mm -hmm. of what is really happening Right. A lot of times with people and with organizations, there are things that are being expressed that we it's like, I don't know why we can't do this or why this isn't working. And so that I had the ability and the skill set to come in, you know, and fresh take to come in and to see. And it's like, well, this thing, have you looked at that? Mm-hmm. You know, and being able to identify blind spots. The thing with the work that I do is also very um provoking and at the core of it is willingness. I'd like to talk for a minute about what it is that you do. So it's a leadership and life coaching firm with a focus on anti-racism and cultural transformation. I read that weird anti-racism. And your tagline is you aim to empower and amplify the voices of the oppressed to transform the world, access your inner voice, empower your speaking voice and free your singing voice. And I'm curious as to how did it come to be that it was you who was called on? So the Black Opera Alliance formed mid-2020 out of the aftermath of George Floyd's murder, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Aubrey. And Brianne was telling, telling us the story, I, us as the collective listeners, um, about how it initially formed, how it was this almost spontaneous, quote unquote, cookout of 400 mm-hmm. people. Um, mm-hmm. And your voice has definitely risen up out of that. And I'm curious how that how that kind of came to be. Well, the events that you listed affected each of us differently. Mm-hmm. And with the grand pause that was, you know, the shelter in place order, we had to be with it, right? In a way that we have never been called to be with it before. So whereas before we had our busyness to distract us, um, we had to be, we got to be with it in a different way. And for me, I was angry and I was vocal about my anger in a way that I had never been. Mm. I was vocal and transparent and I said the thing and I was liberated by this. And I recognized that I'd never really done that because it is dangerous. Mm. It's threatening to the establishment and in turn, it is dangerous for my career, right? And mm-hmm. so many of us know this to be true, right? Mm-hmm. We know the language of, you know, difficult, right? You become difficult 
And when you get that label, that is, is, it's deadly to your career. And just not being comfortable speaking so candidly. You know, before last year, Black folks talked to each other mm-hmm. about this stuff. Social media provided a literal platform for us to speak candidly to each other in the earshot of white people. Mm. And that was new. So I had been practicing this, this level of candor that to be honest is new for some of my colleagues. And I had been removed enough from the um, traditional pathways that it was less dangerous for me. Mm. I built my career mostly entrepreneurially. Mm-hmm. So I didn't have the same weight of concern about whether somebody would hire me, whether someone would label me as difficult. And in reality, I had started to take up this mantle that was presenting to me, you know, we we have the language now of anti-racism as a worker, as a laborer in this space. And since I already occupied the space of opera, then, hey, So that's where I'm starting to see these things intersect. And just from my own lived experience, the lived experiences, the shared experiences with my colleagues, with family, I mean, this is generational, right? And so as I heal, I give voice and I experience the healing of giving voice. Mm -hmm. And so I am passionate about connecting those who have been silenced back to their voices and creating environments that allow them. And if they don't allow them, (laughs) will be shaken by them. Mm -hmm. And so the organizational work, that's why I say it's polarizing because that's who I'm talking to. And that's who I'm here for. I'm here for the people who have not been heard. And that's why you don't realize it. You're thinking, why this thing is not working. This thing is stalled. We're not progressing. That's why, because you've silenced the people who have your answer. Mm -hmm. So now we have to create an environment in which those people can speak and your fragility, right, does not stop them. So I come in and I teach you how to deal with those things that come up, right? The guilt, the shame, the fear, the anger, mm-hmm. the confusion, because that's yours to process. And it's, it's so understandable that it comes up. And also, it is not an excuse to silence these people. Because that's why you're here in the first place, right? Because the myth of white supremacy has told you that white is right, has told you that the structure is not the problem, has told you that you have the answer. When in reality, white is just white, this construct that was made up. The structure is in fact flawed and you couldn't possibly have the answer, right? I said this again out of my anger and frustration because we saw the black cards. We heard the, I see you, I hear you. I'm listening. And it's like, okay, you've been listening for six months and now you got something to say. No, you don't. Mm. You could never be an authority on this because you just now woke up. Mm. So I know that your current structure doesn't have space to even imagine that not only do you not have the answer, but that this Black person does. So now the opportunity is to examine where does the truth lie? Mm. Because the structure is just trying to maintain itself. And guess what? It's going to give you more of the same. So are you trying to keep the same? Are you trying to move forward? And so this is the conversation I've had with the organizations I've worked with. And this is the conversation that I am in 
in the work that I do with the Black Opera Alliance, in the work that I do in From the Core Coaching with my training programs, The Real Work, where I work with white men to get them to hear and see where we want to go. That's the starting point. Where are we? Where do we want to go? Because mm-hmm. I'm not in the business of trying to drag people along where they don't want to be. But you can't keep faking the funk because you say, I see you and I hear you while you over here with your eyes closing your hands and your ears still talking. Mm-hmm. So if you hear me, then you got to listen, which means you need to do more of the, the closing of the mouth and the opening of the ears. That's a part of it. Mm-hmm. You must accept that you don't know. Mm. Do you think, ha, I'm actually curious because I couldn't find it. Have you been working with these? Oh, oh okay. Oh, you got to go. Um, thank you so much for your time. <laughs> we have to end abruptly. Am, yeah, sorry about that. And I am so, and here's the th- I'm I am so down to continue this conversation because um, I know that I can be verbose And it's because I'm very passionate about everything that I'm saying and I feel it to be important. Um, And so I would love to continue this and we can we can do it as a okay. we just cut and splice it on this one or we can do it as a part two. um, If you want to have like a more seamless, whatever, however you want to do it. is exactly what we will do. Next week is part two of the conversation with Jamie, where we will go even deeper into this work of healing and anti-racism and how it applies to opera. You can find Jamie Alilaw on Twitter and Instagram at SangMissJamie. That's S-A-N-G-M-S-J-A-Y-M-E. And her website is jamie-alilaw.com. Alilaw's A-L-I-L-L-A-W. You can find her coaching for individuals and organizations at From the Core Coaching on Instagram, and her website is fromthecorecoaching.com. If you want to keep up with the pod, we're on Instagram at Making It an Opera. And you can support us by telling your friends, rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, and you can pitch in some money as you're able by donating on Ko-Fi. You can find the link when you go to www.makingitinopera.com. See you next week.